Hey, good morning, Twilliger Community Church. It is strange to be uh, speaking to what feels like an empty room, though there are a few of us here. I hope that this Mother's Day finds you well. A marketing firm called Mullen and Lowe uh, produced a commercial several years back that went on to get 27 million YouTube views. And the premise behind the commercial was that they designed a fake job and had an interviewer interview a bunch of people online. When the interview started, the interviewer said, well, this, this job, the working title of this job is the director of operations. You're like, okay, this sounds pretty great. And he goes on to talk about the different requirements. He says, you will need to be able to work standing up. You're going to be on your feet constantly. You need to be able to bend over and pick things up over and over and over again. You need incredible stamina and the ability to exert yourself. In terms of the hours per week, we require 135 hours to unlimited hours each week. So basically, this rule would be 24-7. There are no breaks available, but you can have lunch or, or supper after the associate has had their lunch. In terms of skills, well, you need to have an aptitude for negotiation and interpersonal skills. Ideally, you would have a degree in medicine, finance, and culinary arts. You have to be able to wear many hats. The reality is with this position that the associate needs constant attention. Sometimes you will have to get up with the associate throughout the night. You have to be able to work in a chaotic environment. If you had a life, we are basically asking you to give it up, and you must maintain a happy disposition. Well, of course, the people being interviewed responded with phrases like, This is insane. This is inhumane. There is no way. Is this job even legal? The interviewer went on to say, Well, what if I told you billions of people hold this job around the world? And if you haven't caught on yet, he was interviewing for the position of mom. (laughs) Moms, you guys do so much. We are so appreciative. But this is an appropriate illustration into what I want to talk about this morning because I want us to talk about and explore the concept of our work. And mothers, you have no shortage of work. Have you ever found yourself doing jobs that you didn't really want to do? Jobs you weren't looking forward to? Whether you're a mom or not, I'm sure we've all been faced with that type of a circumstance. I can remember when I was working as a contractor in Calgary, I needed to install a basement window. So I went into this backyard, and with nothing but a shovel and the muscles in my arms and back, I had the task of digging a hole that was five feet deep, five feet wide, and six feet long. This is a big hole, and the soil in Calgary is not favorable to digging holes by hand, and I was miserable. I took long breaks. I was grumpy. I was complaining. I was like, I do not want to do this task. It reminds me of when I was a young kid and my mom said, Adam, I want you to empty the dishwasher. And I argued and I complained. I said, no, I don't want to empty the dishwasher. And I can still hear her voice in my head when she said, Adam, if you would have just done, if you would have just emptied the dishwasher and not argued me about this, it would be done already. (laughs) Maybe you've heard your mother use that line. Maybe you've used it yourself. But what about you? Think about the tasks that you have been given in your life. How have you gone about them? Especially those ones that you didn't want to do. Were you grumpy about it? Were you sloppy? 
Did you do it wholeheartedly or half-heartedly or with no heart at all? Well, our story this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 16 that Gary and Cindy read for us, I believe it contrasts the work of two of 1 Samuel's most prominent characters, King Saul and the soon-to-be King David. And there is a lot that we can learn as we look at how these two men engaged with the tasks set before them. Before we get to that element of this message, we need to dive into our text. And before we do that, we need to recognize that um, this new series of ours, um, which we're calling Everyday Faith, these banners are are beautiful, aren't they? I really like them. Uh, Thanks to Tina for getting those together. She takes care of our stage and uh, they look fantastic. Um, But this season of, of, of preaching, we're looking at the life of David in our title, Everyday Faith. And we've jumped into the middle of a book. First Samuel uh, chapter 13, I believe, is what Norb first looked at. Um, but here in chapter 16, really, we're, we're halfway through. And for us to understand what's going on um, in, in the story, we need to look at this section of Scripture and look at all that's happened before it. Because in First Samuel 16, we see a singular unit with perhaps two parts— The first part was covered last week by Pastor Quinn. But here in 1 Samuel 16, we see that it characterizes David and prepares us for the rest of the book. It also prepares us for this sermon series. So let's look back and see how we got to this point in Scripture. 1 Samuel is an interesting book because it begins while we're still in the season of the judges. So at this point, there's no king in Israel. Uh, And so in Israel, we have people living um, by the rule or the authority of the judge. And the judge was the one who helped them kind of figure out what to do, who led them in war. And at this point, the judge was Samuel. And Samuel was a good judge. He led the people well. And the idea of the judge was that he would be a representative of God to the people. Because at this point in Israel's history, God was supposed to be their king. In biblical theology, we call this a theocracy, God as king, and the judge simply God's representative. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the the nation of Israel has been looking around at all the other nations, and they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we want a king. We want a king like the other nations. Make us like the other nations. Samuel is horrified by this request. But in a time with the Lord in prayer, God says, you know what, Samuel, just give them what they want. And so that is exactly what Samuel does. God chooses Saul to be king, which is a pretty neat story. If you have time this week, I'd encourage you to go back and read it. And what's amazing about Saul is that the spirit of the Lord rushes upon Saul when he he becomes king. And it says that Saul began to prophesy among the prophets. And then word spread throughout Israel that Saul was one among the prophets. We've talked about this a bit in the last few weeks. We've talked about church. But what's the role of a prophet? It's someone who represents God. So you think about King Saul's, the perception of Israel, of King Saul, when he started his kingly ministry, was that he was one speaking the voice of God. Wow! Now, if only that was the defining marker of all that followed. Unfortunately, as we keep reading in 1 Samuel, we read about Saul's sin in two different spots. The first, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, where Saul offers a sacrifice without Samuel. 
So basically Saul is getting ready to lead the people of Israel into battle and they're, they're getting ready and they're like, we're ready to go, we're ready to go. And he's like, we can't until we do the sacrifice. But where is Samuel? So I don't know if Samuel's donkey broke down on the way to the sacrifice, but for some reason Samuel's late. So Saul offers the sacrifices on his own. He was not supposed to do that. And in this case, Samuel says to Saul, God has taken your kingdom. He's seeking one after his own heart, who we know to be David. Fast forward, not even, move ahead in the story to 1 Samuel 15. And we have Saul again going into battle with very, very, very clear instructions from God. Saul, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to do it. And Saul says, yes, okay, that's great. But much like 1 Samuel 13 and now 1 Samuel 15, Instead of being characterized as one who represents God to the people, Saul allows himself to be characterized as one who pursues his own way over God's way. Who chooses to set up his kingdom instead of God's kingdom. And in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is very disobedient to God's instruction. And in this passage, we have uh, the words of Samuel coming to Saul, which we've probably heard in other contexts. But to obey is better than sacrifice. And in both of these cases, Saul loses the kingdom, which brings us to chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. So already a tragic start for Israel having their own king set upon, set before them and not God as king. And in last week, Pastor Quinn talked about David being anointed. This picture of being anointed is, is using oil to represent something of the divine being put on uh, a human. And anointing was usually done for prophets, priests, or kings. But here David was set apart to be the new king. Why is that significant? Well, if Saul was supposed to be king, it meant that his son was supposed to be the king after him. Samuel did not go and anoint Saul's son. Rather, he anoints David, the son of Jesse. So the first half of chapter 16 concludes with David receiving the spirit of God. Which brings us to our text this morning, verse 14 of chapter 16. Now the Spirit of Yahweh, that's Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the name of God, I am who I am. The Spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from Yahweh tormented him. So at the end of the first section of 16, the Spirit of God comes upon David. At the beginning of the second section, the Spirit of God departs Saul. Now this is one of those passages that are really, we kind of wrestle with. We're like, wait a minute, God sends a spirit against Saul? The, the passage that was read for us was from the New International Version, and it uses the word evil spirit, which creates even more theological issues and questions. Um, I don't think that's a great translation. I, I like the ESV's rendering, talking about a harmful spirit. I think we might better understand this to be like an angel of judgment or something like that. And it's tempting for us as we read our Bibles to look at a passage like this and make way more of it than what it's actually trying to say to us. Because how do we understand this idea? The text here, though, is not seeking to explain how God may or may not send and use spiritual beings as a disciplinary measure or to accomplish his purpose. It simply shows us God's activity against Saul. And I think what is clear in the, in the narrative that we've had up to this point, including this verse, is that the author of 1 Samuel clearly sees that God, um, that, that, sorry, the author of Samuel clearly sees that Saul has rejected God. He has chosen to be unrepentant. He's chosen to do things his own way. 
And so it seems that God is now rejecting Saul. And so Saul is living with the consequence of his choices and his unrepentant heart. This is highlighted for us in the next movement of our story um, as it goes on where, where Saul, while being tormented by the Spirit, instead of seeking God for deliverance, instead of praying to God for help, instead of saying, God, I repent, I repent, I'm sorry, what does he do? He turns to his own means, he turns to his own resources, he turns to what is at his disposal to try to make himself feel better. Continuing in this posture of rejecting God. Just keeps rejecting God. And so Saul's men come to him and say, Hey, you know, we, we know someone who might be able to help you. And here again we have David entering the story. Now there's speculation on how much time has passed between the anointing of David in the earlier section of chapter 16 and our section here now. But what is important, I think, for us to note is that enough time has passed for David to gain a reputation. At the beginning of chapter 16, David is not even worth mentioning. But by now, he is known as a member of the king's staff. So some, he is known by some of the king's staff. So he's obviously gained a reputation. So some time has passed. In verse 12 of chapter 16, we're told that David is handsome. But now here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18, five attributes are added. So one of the young men answered to King Saul. He says, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. So here what's interesting, and imagine being David, right? Two times in one chapter, uh, the the author points out that he is attractive. You know, we get that from uh, verse 12 and then here in 18 where it says that he is of good presence. (laughs) How would you like, you know, no one can argue. Was David attractive? Yes, it's in God's word. That is unarguable. David was an attractive man. I'm jealous of David there. You know, come on, it's in God's word. (laughs) Um, But significant in the context of this passage, these attributes— that are being described of David, is that David can play a mean guitar solo. <laughs> David could play the lyre, which is kind of like a harp. And the, the, the belief of that ancient worldview was that music was used to soothe the troubled spirit. So Saul commissions David to come and play music for him. The next movement of our story is David moving to Saul's court. Now we can only imagine all that David felt as he journeyed to Saul's house. He probably, you know, we can only speculate on this, but I bet you he wondered, does Saul know? Does Saul know that I've been anointed king? Does Saul know? And, and if he knows, is he, is he repentant and does he want to give me the throne now? Or does Saul know and he wants to establish his own kingdom? So is he going to kill me? Well, it seems that Saul has no idea about David's anointing. Because when David arrives, he simply gets to work. He faithfully serves in the place where he is. We are introduced to David at the beginning of this chapter as the forgotten youngest son in a family of seven brothers. Then we witness him now at work in his first job away from home. David does not seek to take what is rightfully his. He doesn't come to Saul and say, hey, Saul, you're sitting in my chair. 
He does not work bitterly or try to undermine Saul's authority. Rather, he serves in such a way that Saul finds favor with him. And I would argue that he ministers in such a way that Saul's role as king is enhanced and bettered. David makes Saul a better king in his work for him. David is promoted to an armor bearer. This is not necessarily that he carried Saul's armor literally. Rather, that he was in the service of Saul formally. And that is our passage for this morning. David moving from the fields with the sheep to the king's court. This passage, chapter 16, introduces us to David, and I believe very intentionally so, against the backdrop of Saul. So what can we learn from all of this? When we look at contrasting David and Saul, what are our takeaways? Well, Eugene Peterson frames this narrative with the title, Work. Inviting us to see the relationship between our work and our worship. And I believe that this narrative invites us to see that the tasks of our daily lives are the space where we can worship Jesus and be with Jesus. Friends, we all have tasks to do. We all have work to do. You may be a child who simply has chores to do around the house. You may be in elementary school and your work is going to school day after day, uh, doing your homework. You may be in high school. You might even have a part-time job alongside your schoolwork. You may be studying in your undergraduate in college or university. You may be uh, someone who is working a temporary job, waiting for that career. You may be in your career. You may be retired. You may be a stay-at-home parent, but no matter where you find yourself, we all have jobs to do, things to do, tasks to perform. The story of a woman whose mom recently passed and she's going through all of her mom's belongings. And she finds a journal and she's so excited because she did not know her mom journaled. Her mom was really quiet. She's like, oh, I'm going to learn something about my mom. And she opens up to the middle of this book and notices that everything's in point form, which she thought was really strange. And she begins to read. Organize closet in bedroom. Bake cookies. Write a letter to to, to Judith. And she quickly realizes that she's reading a to-do list. She, she flips through the book, all these different spots, and over and over again is one to-do list after another. The woman is crushed. She's like, oh, I wanted to learn more about my mom, and all I got was a to-do list. But then she flips in one last effort to the beginning of the book and reads a familiar verse written in her mom's own handwriting. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And this woman suddenly understood that her mom saw in all of her to-do lists the outworking of an opportunity to worship and glorify God. Friends, it's so easy for you and I to separate the spiritual parts of our lives or the God stuff parts of our lives, our devotions, our prayer, our church attendance. It's so easy to take all of those things and separate them from what we would consider our ordinary to-do elements of our lives. We can think that there's nothing spiritual about our to-do lists, our time in high school, those homework assignments that you're working on. 
We might think that there's nothing significant about our folding of the laundry, our preparing of a meal, the mowing of a lawn. We might think that there's nothing spiritual about that business call or that sales meeting. We might think there's nothing spiritual about that spreadsheet that we're filling out to represent the accounting of a company. But friends, what if there is? What if God is interested in it all? What if God wants to use our to-do lists and our seemingly ordinary tasks to help us become who he wants us to be? What if the way that you carry yourself in your workplace and, and your mentality around your work is more important to your spiritual formation than reading your Bible? Well, I think it might be at certain times. I'm reading a book right now by Trish Harrison called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. It's a fantastic book. She's writing from an Anglican perspective, but I would encourage you if if you're looking for something to read, it's just fantastic. But she writes that the kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I often want to skip the boring daily stuff to get to the thrill of an edgy faith. But it's the dailiness of the Christian faith, the making the bed, the doing the dishes, the praying for our enemies, the reading the Bible, the quiet, the small, that God's transformation takes root and grows. I love that quote. It might not be in the things that you think are spiritual where you experience the deepest formation. So how does this play out and how on earth does it relate to 1 Samuel 16? Well, friends, again, I believe that this narrative invites us to see the tasks of our daily lives as a space where we can worship Jesus and be with Jesus. So I think there's two things we need to learn. First is we need to learn to see the tasks of your daily lives as an opportunity to worship God. Learn to see the tasks of your daily life as an opportunity to worship God. When we read about the fall of Saul, we see that Saul did not work to worship God. Rather, he worked to worship himself or he worked to worship men. Saul's sins were not immorality. They were not injustice. They weren't things that we would look at and say, oh, that was really bad. Rather, his sins were all about worship. Where his role as the king of Israel was to put God first, he put himself first. He put his own comfort first. He put his own kingdom first before God. And he missed the fact that it wasn't actually his kingdom. It was God's kingdom. Saul appeared to want to honor God, but he did so for his own sake, not for God's sake. When we look at the life of David, we see one who seeks to honor God for God's sake. What we see in David is a humility to God's sovereignty And an effort to work diligently for the man who sat in his chair. Could you imagine being David? Working in Saul's courts knowing that you are anointed king over Israel? How How could David work for Saul in that context? I think it's only that David understood that he wasn't actually working for Saul. He was working for God. And we're going to go on throughout the narratives of of Samuel to look at all the different ways David fused together his work and his worship. And all that he did as king, it was not just about him. It wasn't about his own honor, his own glory. It was about worshiping 
God. I think of the account of 2 Samuel chapter 6 where they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Israel and a king is supposed to be dignified. A king is supposed to be one who people look at and respect and David strips down to nothing basically and he dances in the streets as an expression of worship to God. So much so that his, his wife rebukes him saying, what are you doing? And he looks at her and says, I will become even more undignified than this. In all that David did, he worshipped. And for us, it is an invitation to, to worship. At the beginning of 1 Samuel 16, he is the forgotten of seven brothers. Nothing significant about him. But by the end of this chapter, he is well known, reputable. Why? I believe he worked under God. For us to do this, we need to rightly understand what work is. That when we work, we engage in a task of God. God is the one who worked first. He is the first worker. When we work, we are actually God-like. In this, we are never just working. It's never just a job. It's never just your career. It's, you're, it's never just something you do. And you are certainly never just a mom. But in all that you do, you are engaging in the same way that God is the worker. You too are the worker. You become godlike in your work. Friends, we have to reject the goal of work as the absence of it. That is a cultural narrative. We work to get our retirement. We work for the weekend. These types of things are not scriptural. As Christians, we see our work as participation with God. We work hard, and then we enjoy the blessed commandment of resting hard on Sabbath. But in all of our work, we participate with God. Continuing in the commandment given to humanity in chapter 2 of Genesis verse 15 to cultivate the earth. And so we rightly direct our work back towards God. So how do we make worship work? We keep with Colossians chapter 3.23 that whatever we do, we work heartily for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord we will receive the inheritance as our reward. Do you notice the end goal of our work? The end goal is not riches. The end goal is not power. The end goal is not fame. It's not retirement. But it's the Lord. We work to his glory. We work to his glory. Martin Luther King has been quoted from a, a, um, a speech that he gave about this. And he, he talks about our work. He says, If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, Sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures or Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Leonetti Price sings before the Metropolitan Opera. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, Here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Friends, no matter the task, we have the opportunity to glorify God. How do we do that? We do our best. We don't cheat or cut corners. We don't do the bare minimum. We honor and bless those around us. We make choices consistent with God's values. We choose to see the work of our hands as an offering to our Father in heaven. And as we do that, our work becomes worship. And friends, there's a great joy in that. There's a great joy in that. 
So the first thing we need to learn is to see the tasks of our daily lives as an opportunity to worship. The second thing we need to learn is we need to learn to see the tasks of our daily lives as an opportunity to be with God. An opportunity to be with God. See, Saul appears to use God for work. He wants God to to give a blessing before a battle. Or he wants to use worship as a way to impress the people around him. Look at 1 uh, 1 Samuel 15. But Saul is doing these things in, in such a way that I so often do myself. It's starting my day with a well intentioned prayer, but giving no other thought to God after that moment throughout my day. While that prayer, again, is well intentioned, it risks using God simply as a tool. God, make my day good. God, keep me safe. God, do this, this, and this. And then I walk out the door. It's like leaving God at home. Friends, our engagement in our daily lives is not meant to be like that. See, when we look at the life of David, David did not separate his spiritual life from any other element of his life. There is no separation between work and worship. There is no separation between being with God and doing the stuff of life. No, he was with him in all of it. An upcoming narrative that we have of David was he's seeking God's instruction for war. He does it twice. It talks about him inquiring of the Lord, 1 Samuel chapter 23. That even the battle, defeating the Philistines, where we read in the next couple chapters about David and Goliath, he he seeks the Lord. How, How do you want me to do this? And God gives him wisdom. The Psalms are a profound example that David saw no emotion or human experience from being off bounds from God. I talk about this a lot. That in our anger, maybe even our rage, in our depression, our sorrow, in in our frustration, in, in all of these things, we read about David taking all these emotions to God over and over and over and over again. Sometimes he's angry with God. Sometimes he's asking God to crush his enemies. But so often as Christians, we feel like those emotions aren't meant for God. It's like, ooh, I don't like those emotions. God probably doesn't like them either. Those emotions are, they aren't spiritual. They aren't appropriate for God. So I'm just going to keep them over here. But we read the Psalms and we see that all of these emotions flow into worship and prayer before God. Recognizing our need for Him. And what I love in our text is this question, what characterized David? Ultimately, verse 18 ends at the the climactic expression that David was known for having the Lord being with him. The Lord was with him. This wasn't something he went out and declared. He didn't go say, hey guys, the Lord is with me. But the way he shepherded, the way he played the lyre, the way he interacted with his neighbors, the way in which he went about the tasks that he was doing, people looked at his life and said, Yahweh's with him. Don't know what it is about David, but it looks like Yahweh is with him. Can that be said of us? I can't, as I read David's life, I can't help but wonder if in all that David did, that he viewed his work not only as worship to God, but partnership with God. We have a fuller picture of this in the person of Jesus Christ. When we look at the person of Jesus, I've always been captivated by the verse uh, in John chapter 5. It's referenced throughout John, actually, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. 
Or similarly in John 12, 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Friends, this is the posture of Jesus. He did what the Father did. He spoke what the Father spoke. And when I look at David, I see a heart that's longing for the same things. God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want me to say? And this was not just for church attendance on Sunday, but for every element of their lives. And it culminates in the phrase of Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 22. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And it's easy for us to say, well, that's Jesus. Come on, that's Jesus. Friends, Jesus came as a man. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit living in us. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again on the third day. He ascended into heaven and he sent us the Holy Spirit who's called the helper, who empowers our work. He empowers our work. So just as I close, I just have three really quick, I promise, little applications for us. How do we do this? Well, first, I think we need to rightly understand devotions. We need to rightly understand devotions. What do I mean by that? When I say devotions, what comes to your mind? Okay, that 30 minutes maybe in the morning where I read my Bible and I pray, right? Um, It's such a misuse of the word devotion, isn't it? Because if we're devoted to something, we don't just give it 30 minutes of our morning. Devotions is about our whole lives. What are you devoted to? If I followed you around for 24 hours and maybe had a look at your bank account, I could tell you what you are devoted to. What would I see? The problem is we've come to think of devotions like a pre-work safety meeting. (laughs) When I was a framer, we always had to gather at the trailer before we started our day and we we huddled together and we talked through um, all the safety stuff for the day and then we just went off, right? We didn't always listen to the rules that we set at the beginning. So how do we rightly understand devotion? Well, we understand that devotion is, in the phrasing of Dallas Willard, is about keeping Jesus before our minds. That as we engage in our work, our play, our chores, our parenting, that business meeting, that finance meeting, as we engage in the midst of our retirement, in everything we do, we keep Jesus before our minds, remembering that he is with us. Recognizing that, that by the power of the Spirit, we can have fellowship with Jesus as we do the dishes or mow the lawn. Friends, that is a beautiful truth. So we need to rightly understand devotions. Secondly, I think we need to add a prayer habit to your work. Add a prayer habit to your work. I really believe that the power of the Spirit in our lives is for more than what we call spiritual or church-related elements of our lives. God's Spirit is with us always. Always. That no matter what we're engaging in, in a day, we we have the Spirit's power there available to us. Um, My mother is just an amazing woman, and she would drive me crazy (laughs) with the reference to me. I'd be talking to her about framing or something. Like, yeah, work's going good. And she'd say, Adam, when you're framing and you, like, come up against a problem or an issue— do you ever ask Jesus what you should do? And I was like, no, right? And the follow-up is like, he's Jesus. What does he know about framing? And the response is, well, he was a carpenter. I was like, well, I guess so. <laughs> Maybe he'd have lots to say, right? 
And it was just this past week, my mom and I were building a sandbox for my niece and my nephew. And, uh, and there was this uh, piece of wood, had a screw that had stripped, and we were having trouble getting it out. And I was off doing something else. And I came back, I'm like, mom, you did it. She's like, yeah, I just asked Jesus. Which is her saying like, yeah, I prayed about it. And God just gave me an idea of how to get the screw out. And it seems so silly. It seems like, really? It seems hyper-spiritual. But friends, that's what it's about. As we go throughout our day, when we face any type of problem, frustration, depression, whatever we're feeling inside, we ask Jesus. And we develop prayer as a habit in our work. So my question for you is, in your current day, when you think back about this past week, what did you need to ask Jesus about? And friends, this isn't about having God's blessing on everything you do. It's not about everything turning to gold when you touch it. Rather, it's about fellowshipping with Jesus in the midst of your work. It's about recognizing his presence is not limited to a 30-minute moment in the morning, but that he's with you throughout the day. Some of you are good at this, and I'd encourage you to put an effort into teaching it to me and to others, because... We need to grow in this as a community. The third thing I give us uh, this morning is to, we need to seek to put Jesus on display. You want your, worship, your work to be worship? You want your work to be a place where you are fellowshipping with Jesus? Put mindful effort into putting Jesus on display. If David was characterized by having the Lord being with him, how would you be characterized? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul calls us the aroma of Christ. Do you smell of Jesus? Or do you smell of something else? David, before he was king, smelt of Yahweh. People saw his life, and there's something about it where they're like, man, this guy, this guy knows God. And it becomes a testimony to others. And I want you to think about this, because this blew my mind when I noticed this in our text. Why is Saul tormented? I would theorize that one of the reasons he's tormented is because he's lost the spirit of God that he had. He, He experienced God's presence. He had fellowship with God by the power of his spirit, and that spirit left. What does David bring to Saul? David is characterized as one with the spirit, and as he plays music, He's ministering to Saul the same spirit that he lost. Why is this significant? Friends, we live in a world where people have rejected their creator. Ecclesiastes talks about how eternity is written on our hearts. All people ultimately are longing for greater purpose. They're longing to be known. They're longing to be loved. They they have what we sometimes call that God-shaped heart inside of them. And they're seeking to fill it through so many different means. Maybe our work can be a way to minister the Spirit of God to those who have rejected that Spirit. To grow in them a longing to know God more. I believe that's what David did when he ministered to Saul. And though Saul kept rejecting God, David remained faithful in ministering to him. Friends, I hope that you can see that the tasks of our daily lives are the space where we can worship Jesus and be with Jesus. 
And as we gain this perspective, I hope that it brings joy to your work. I want to close with the lyrics of a song by uh, a group of musicians called the Porter's Gate. And they have a whole record called Work Songs. It's uh, just fantastic. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And I want you to hear and receive this as kind of a, a prayer and a benediction. And this doesn't touch on every type of work. But I think you'll get the picture. Let me read this over you. And then we'll close with the song, Be Thou My Vision. Server, you remind us of our Savior's bowl and towel. Teacher, you are raising up a child to be kind. Lawyer, you give us hope that justice will one day surround us. Farmer, you are working for a table full of bounty. Painter, with each color you are teaching us to see. Nurse, yours are the healing hands that touch the poor and broken. Carpenter, you frame a house for those who need protection. Laborer, you lift a heavy burden for the weak. Leaders, build a city that all children may rejoice in. God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in us. And may we be a people who are characterized and known as, as men and women who worship God in their work and who fellowship with you in our work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.